So quick little warning. Uh, we have a lot of background noise happening in this episode. Uh, we were doing this at nighttime and the cats were all really antsy because they wanted to go to sleep. So you're going to hear them throughout. Bear with us. We're trying here. Welcome to Two Hags Converge in the Woods. I'm Shantae. I'm Ash. And Gracie's over there. She has been here for every single episode, so she's our third host. She's, she's our mascot. She's our mascot. Our biggest we supporter. need to have t-shirts. Little face on them. Or stickers. You know? Something fun for the children. The children should not be listening no, to this. No, they should not be li- This is not. It's explicit. And I, I'm very careful about that. Um, so yeah, today we are doing Dogma finally. We had a brief emergency. Uh, and that's why we are a week late. Uh, sorry, not sorry. Life happens. So let's get into, into Kevin Smith's Dogma, Ashley. So first, I think we should go over our biases, because there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack. Well, I think there's too much Yeah. to unpack. I, let it be known, um, our family, a lot of our family, especially extended family, is devout Catholic to this day. Um, we were never really raised in any kind of organized religion, thankfully. Well, I mean... Teeny bit. Adventist, teeny bit. Um, our parents are still pretty Catholic. Regardless of what they say. They're going to hear this. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay. Like, like ideology. In the way, in, yeah, and the way they're like... Yeah. Because that's how they were raised. Yeah. We weren't raised that way. Um, For the... Yeah. I, I have... Uh, I have a lot of baggage with Catholicism. A lot of misgivings, if Yeah, you will. a lot of that. Um, I don't have a problem with religion. I don't think either of us do. I just have a problem with humans and what they do with religion. Um, and how they use it as a weapon. That's as far as we're going to delve. I just want everyone to be clear, though. We have biases. Yeah, so, um, I think we mentioned this maybe last time. Mm. But if you're, like, really hardcore religious or, like, you feel like this might be something that offends you, just skip this episode. Just skip it. Yeah. Because, It's going to be chock full of... It's going to be chock full of us just disparaging and saying... You know, I'm being heretics, you know? Yeah, you know, godless sinners. Um, so we also kind of wanted to talk a little bit about what it was like watching this growing up as kids and watching it again as adults. Because we both watched it when we were very young, and we both have said that this movie has a lot to do with why we feel the way we do about organized religion. But how, were, how old were you when you first watched it? I was probably around 11, 12 when I first watched it. Oh, shit. Yeah. Were you Were you younger than that? I don't know. You don't remember the first time? I remember watching it a lot around that age when I was about 12, 11. Okay. But I don't remember if I watched it before that. You watched it beforehand. Yeah. So, I mean, as a kid, it was just a funny, inappropriate movie for the most part with brief moments of, oh, yeah, that's actually kind of true. I don't think, like, as a kid, I... Well, here's the thing. Okay. (laughs) Already in elementary school, I already had a lot of thoughts about religion yeah. and our relationship to God. So I'm not sure if this movie really influenced that. Mm. But I can say that, like, there are certain things that I think now that I think the ma- movie did kind of influence. Yeah. And that I don't even think I really realized I was... Being influenced. Being influenced while watching it. Because it's like, it, like all those conversations within the movie... Yeah. Like, I don't remember them at all. Yeah, that's the interesting part. I think I think there are certain arguments that are made within the film, especially, like you said, conversations between characters, um, that kind of just get you thinking, and you kind of recognize the hypocrisy of a lot of it, and how, once again, it goes back to, you know, how humans have turned something that was really based around, you know, tolerance and understanding and compassion into something that is anything but that, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what you're referring to. With, like, it sticks in your mind. There's a lot of things you're like, wait a minute, yeah, that doesn't really make sense. Or, wait, that's not at all what they follow anymore, you know? Yeah. Like, little moments here and there. Um, and, I mean, as an adult, what's it like now for you? It's weird. <laughs> Because there, there are moments, too, just watching the film, just completely divorcing it from, like, what's mm. the religious connotations and everything. Like, 
where it's like I think this influenced my writing style a little bit. Ooh, really? Because I focus yeah. a lot on conversations mm. and just like having like those weird, you know, the way they have conversations in the movie. Right. And like and I have a lot of um interest in like religion and gods and stuff. You do in your in your writing. You're you're right. Yeah, you're right. And it's like, it, watching it was weird because I was picking up on things that like, oh god, did I get this from here? <laughs> you know? Isn't it weird yeah. watching movies that you haven't watched in forever and realizing that like, oh It had shit. influence on you. Yeah. In a way that you never really That's how I feel about his Dark Materials too, Oh yeah, that's, that's another one we gotta do. Um, that one fucked me up. <laughs> <laughs> that one's currently fucking me up, so I feel you. Um... With Dogma also, Kevin Smith, I think that's why he's so popular as a director, why he was so popular then and why he even is now. He has a way of creating characters and having them interact with each other that is really unique to him. Um, It's how you talk with your friends. Yeah. Like, how you bullshit with your friends is the way their characters talk to each other. It's very real. I think that's the appeal, too. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's real life conversation happening on a screen and in a way that's entertaining. Yeah. And, like, um, I'm sure there's a lot of criticism already for actual reviews, because, mm. you know, we're not doing that, but, like, just talking about how, like, the plot itself is weak. Yeah. Or, like, the narrative, and that's, like, usually how his movies are, to be honest. Yeah. But it's, like, you like the characters, and that's what you kind of stick around for. Yeah, the characters are the foundation, and yeah. their interactions. And, I mean, I think that says also a lot just about, like, writing in general. Mm. Like, if you can make good characters, it doesn't really matter anything. what else is happening. Right. You know? I mean, not to go too far off on a tangent, but if you look at any situational comedy, typically the plot is very non-existent. <laughs> it's all based around characters and how they react to a situation and how they react to each other. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's very true. And uh, with Kevin Smith specifically... The characters that I think really showcase this is Jane Silent Bob. Oh, 100%. Um, those characters, I mean, Silent Bob literally is silent. He does not speak except for a handful of times um, within throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of Kevin Smith's films are within the Askew universe. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. I, I'm not going to delve into that right now. We don't have time for it. But... Um, Jane Silent Bob are prevalent throughout most of his films, and those two characters work so well together. Mm-hmm. And even though one of them doesn't say anything, and the other one says everything and then some, it somehow still works. Mm-hmm. And I find that so intriguing that he has a silent character who's just reacting to the other character. It's just... Those those two characters are what hooked me to his films, um, specifically. I, you know what? That's true, huh? Yeah. They really are the standout, and that's why they keep showing up. They keep showing They're hilarious, too. Yeah. Jason Mewes, who's um, Jay, he does an incredible job because he has to carry the team in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, but in a way that is not overpowering. overpowering enough that Silent Bob isn't also allowed to like react and have you know these funny expressions on his faces. I think they were, their chemistry, you can tell they're friends in real life because if they weren't, it wouldn't work the same way. Um, but yeah, I mean... I guess, is that what we have to say about how we view it as adults now? It's interesting you're saying your writing style is... Are you seeing it? I'm like, yeah, I'm like actually realizing now that you're very right. It's scary, <laughs> right? If y'all are interested, we'll, we'll, we'll put an at to her, um, her Instagram so you guys could take a look at some of her work. So before we continue on with the film and the characters and stuff, I think there are there are some things we do have to talk about before and it's kind of the implied arguments the really subtle ones that he's making because overall the theme is arguments about religion against it for what have you but there are definitely other things at play um and one of the first things we see is and it's it's the first scene of the film it's catholicism wow the campaign (laughs) with buddy christ there Swinking uh, at you with with the finger guns, it's amazing. Um, Jesus is bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> and there is the first one. <laughs> what? If you're offended, now you know. Okay. <laughs> oh, jeez, fantastic, Ashley. Thank you for somehow shoehorning that into what? the into the the episode. 
So, um, I think Buddy Christ, so the Buddy Christ character is literally just statue of Christ, like we said, winking and pointing with finger guns. And um, the whole thing is to retire the crucifix because it's not, it's kind of old fashioned and they want something new to, you know. Really pull in the crowd. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so dumb. Um, uh, the the priest too is played by George Carlin. Right? Oh, fantastic! I always get distracted by that every time I watch the movie. Such a good casting. Like there is no one who could have done that role the same way. Um, and I think this in particular is an argument about capitalism, because you have this organized religion that should be above this kind of you know financial system uh, within government, and it's instead playing into it. And I think it's an argument about how the Vatican is its pretty guilty of doing this themselves. The, Va the Vatican is guilty of doing a lot of things. We don't have that kind of time. We have an hour. We have an hour. Don't have that kind of time, Ashley. Um, and this is only the first instance where we see uh, capitalism being referenced here. The other instance is, and this is also within the Askew universe, is uh, Mubi. Um, and he is uh, a cow who is a sort of weird cross between uh, Mickey Mouse, Disney's Mickey Mouse, and uh, McDonald's. So there's a whole scene with the two archangels that we meet in the film, Bartleby and Loki, played by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, respectively. And they go to the headquarters of movie, the movie franchise, and they essentially execute the executives of this company um and they call them like idolaters uh they say that they're you know they're they're sinners and they're monsters because of the things they've done in their life they kind of go down the list of what they've all done oh yeah and it's rough you know we got pedophiles we have murderers we have i mean we got a little bit of everything sprinkled throughout the execs and uh, they these two angels Specifically, Loki, Matt Damon's character, is the one who executes all of these executives. Um, and it's, it's, once again, this argument of capitalism of how, you know, the people who are at the top of the chain are monsters in every form. Um, do you have anything to add to this? I don't know. Capitalism? I, don't know. I mean, I, there's I some feel, I feel like the movie, honestly, like, if... If you haven't seen it, it really does speak for itself. It does in a lot of. We had a little bit of of, of a problem because we were like, I don't know what we're going to talk about for an hour because it's like it's it's really just all surface. There's not a whole lot of subtext here. Um. So I think one interesting point that it makes and why capitalism is so corrupting, um, and we see it within these executives. Loki says that uh, fear makes human beings decent. You know, they have something to fear. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they're not afraid of anything. Yeah, these executives have nothing to fear. I mean, that's how it is in real life, too. I mean, too. you know... If you're above the law and yeah. everything, I mean, what do you... I mean, yeah, I mean, you, someone, a rich person gets a speeding ticket, $200 speeding ticket, I mean, that's nothing. But someone who's living paycheck to paycheck, they get that. I mean, they still have to pay rent, they have bills to pay, they probably have kids to feed, like, $200 is a lot. But when you're wealthy, that's nothing. So, like, are you really punished? Mm, I don't know. And I'm, that's kind of the point they're making is, you know, they sit above everyone and they're untouchable by everything. They have nothing to fear because they're so untouchable. And so they do things that are just absolutely abhorrent and terrible and awful. And they get away with it time and time again. Um, and, you know, this argument of capitalism, you could do a whole paper on how it pops up throughout there are also a lot of other things happening. So there's like racial tones, um, uh, discussion about sexism and feminism, which is really interesting because this movie is, I think, late 90s, early 2000s. Is it? Yeah, I think it's something like that. I Let me, let me, me double check. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be, huh? I think it is. I think it was um, 1999. Oh. So right before 2000 hit and... You know, while uh, these topics have been up for discussion in a lot of films, uh, feminism in particular is an interesting one because it hasn't, it's not a popular thing to talk about yeah. just yet. You know, it, there's a point in the, the mid-2000s where it becomes really, really 
Like, it becomes a talking point. Everyone wants to discuss it. But 1999, it, we're not quite there yet. So it's interesting to see it brought up. Um, and the, spe- the scene that I'm referencing specifically is with uh, Serendipity, who is uh, a muse who left heaven to go find her fortune and get credit for all of her ideas. So a muse is essentially someone who, who creates art. Uh, so she wants to create her own art instead of inspiring humans to create art. Uh, and Serendipity is played by the wonderful Salma Hayek. Absolutely, always great to see her in something. She's one of my favorites. She is not aged. She has not freaking aged, man. She's a vampire. I'm okay with it. I'm here for it. I will protect her. Like, <laughs> I love Salma Hayek. And there's a scene with Serendipity where she talks about um, how... There's a big problem with the writing of the Bible. Mind you, this is all within this universe. You know, I don't want people getting confused and thinking we're talking about the, the actual Bible. This is within the film. Um, and she talks about how, you know, all the pen holders of the Bible were men. So she's referencing God being a woman. But because the pen holders were males, they turned she into he. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once again, super interesting, fascinating to see this pop up because at this point, have we seen this argument of maybe God's a woman yet? I don't recall seeing it in earlier media. I think this is the first time if, you know, I saw it actually done within anything, you know, now it's actually pretty common to, we have a whole Ariana Grande song about it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but, uh, 1999, hadn't quite happened I mean, yet. I'm, I'm sure it was a concept, but it, uh-huh. it definitely wasn't something that was cropping up in popular media. No. It's mainstream media. Mainstream you know? media, yeah. Absolutely not. I think it was, a, it, was a, it was a no-no. It was a taboo. So, she also goes on to say how the Bible itself is problematic and how it's uh, against women and how, you know, she has this whole speech where she says, you know, a woman's responsible for original sin. A woman... Um, uh, cut off Sanson's uh, hair. A woman asked for the head of John the Baptist. And she makes this point of women are treated as more as like uh, worse villains than the Romans and Egyptians. Romans, once again, being the people who actually crucified and killed Jesus Christ. The main character of the whole Bible. You I know? mean, yeah. So she's, she's making these points. And uh, when I, this, this whole conversation is one that always sticks in my head, even from when I first watched it as a kid. Because I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Wait a minute. That's weird. Why are women always the bad guys? What's crazy, too, especially, is because, like, it's something that um, in Catholicism is really, like... Mm. It's, like, it's like really... Um, what's the word? Emphasized? Yeah. That women and blah, 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 and, you know... Women did this, and women did that, and original yeah. sin. It's definitely a variable of, um... But then they also, like, worship the Mother Mary. That's Catholic specifically? That's Does anyone Catholics. else do it? I don't, I don't know, actually. I'm not I, sure either. We just know about Catholicism, really. Yeah, that's really our, our, our purview here. But I've always felt like that was really fucking weird, right? I mean, that the only woman worth worshipping in any sense is a virgin? Just that a woman in general is being worshipped that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. obviously it's because she's a virgin, but, like, right. that's weird, right? I mean, yeah. Given the fact that, I mean, can women be saints? Is that is that a thing still? Uh, or is that I a... don't know specifically in Catholicism. I do know in other sects, at least, that it it's a thing. Mm. But I don't know how the Catholics... Yeah, and that's made the main point of the whole film is Catholicism itself, so I don't want to speak too much on the other ones. Um... But yeah, no, I, I think it's it's interesting. And I mean, her points hold up in the sense of like, women are a lot of the times erased yeah. from events. I mean... I mean, look how they also treated... Um, Mary Magdalene? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, Mary Magdalene, wasn't it proven that she wasn't a prostitute? That she was like of a well-born family? That's what they say. Yeah. But at the end of the day, also like... Grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, it was so long ago. Yeah. First of all, if it did happen. Right. But, like, you know, that's weird. Like, Jesus was cool with her. Why are you guys being meaner? 
Well, this kind of goes back to serendipity's <laughs> point of the pen holders were men. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. So, a lot of other topics. The racial topics I'll talk um, a little bit more about a little bit later. I think that uh, we have a lot to say about that one as well. Talk a little bit about Bethany, the main character. Um, I don't remember who she was played by. Give me one second. Uh, Linda Fiorentino. Linda Fiorentino. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember what else she was in, but I recognize her. We won't have to get it. We won't get into that right now. Um, but Bethany is an interesting character. I think because she's a character that from the very beginning is sort of lost. Um, she was a devout Catholic growing up, and as an adult, she just doesn't really have any reason to believe anymore in um, everything she used to believe in. So uh, she works at an abortion clinic, irony of ironies, and uh, she's talking with her, her one of her co-workers, and she says, I think God is dead. And that really just solidifies her character right there. You know immediately who she is and what she stands for, which is in a lot of ways, you know, kind of unclear because it's unclear to her who she is anymore. But we have an understanding of this character, someone who has lost her faith. Um, and this whole movie is kind of her journey in returning to her faith. Um, I want to add anything to Bethany here? Nothing. I don't got nothing to say about Bethany. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to say about Bethany. We can talk about the Metatron a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. no. Uh, the Metatron is played by the late Alan Rickman. Uh, as we all know, well-loved. Uh, if you're a fan of his, this is definitely worth a watch because he does a wonderful job in this film. Um, he, I think, really forced everyone else to get to his level in the film. Uh, there's even... I think there's an interview where Jason Mewes, who played Jay, he talks about how he like was really serious about learning his lines in this movie because he knew Alan Rickman was going to be in it. Um, and he didn't want to look like an idiot in front of him. <laughs> so I thought that was cool. Um, so the Metatron is the voice of God. Um, literally. He's the one that talks to Moses, the burning bush. Uh, he's the one that tells Jesus what, what's going to happen to him. Um, and he comes to Bethany and he tells Bethany, you know, we need your help. Uh, these two angels are trying to get back into heaven, even though God has decreed they are not allowed back in. And if they succeed in their attempt, uh, it will undo the universe. So we need you to stop them. Yeah, because God's word in this movie is uh, final, right? Yeah, it's final. God is infallible. To prove God wrong is to unmake the world. So that's kind of the danger of this whole film and why they can't allow Bartleby and Loki, the two renegade angels, to get back into heaven. So the way they're trying to get back into heaven, um, they're trying to go to through an archway in this uh, church in New, New Jersey. This archway um, is essentially, uh, it's, it's celebrating its centennial, I believe. Yeah. And there's something special about it. What is it again? Uh, if you walk through the archway, you'll be, like, cleared of all your sins or something. That's right. That's right. It's dogmatic law. Whatever. It's 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 what Jesus told Peter, I believe, where he said, whatever you hold to be true on earth, I will hold to be true in heaven. So it's, it, it's something related to that on how, because it's a centennial, there's something special about this archway. It gives it this... This ability, essentially, anyone who passes through it, their sins are wiped clean, and that's what they're trying to do. They want to go through this archway, get their sins wiped clean, die, and then go back to heaven. But once again, if that happens, God is made wrong, and that can't happen because God is infallible. So this is the issue, this is the situation, this is the problem. And the Metatron comes to Bethany and says, you have to help us. He doesn't explicitly say why he chose her. We find that out a little bit later. Um, it turns out Bethany is the last scion is how they word it. Essentially, she's the last living uh, descendant of Jesus Christ. Through his uh, siblings. Half, half siblings. Half siblings. Yeah. So the argument is made in the film by Rufus, who we'll discuss in a second. 
that Mary Mag, uh, not Mary Magdalene, I'm sorry, um, uh, the Virgin Mary and her husband Joseph had children after Christ. So, once again, this is very much against the rhetoric. Because, <laughs> you know, because she's supposed to be a virgin the whole time. Um, but as Rufus says it, you can't expect two people to be married and to have never gotten down. So it's a solid argument. You know, they were married the whole time. Especially in those times. Like, yeah. what are you drinking? <laughs> yeah, so she's, she's a descendant of Christ's half-siblings. Um, and she's the last one. Uh, another important detail about Bethany is she was married, but the marriage ended because uh, she was infertile. She couldn't have children. And it's it was a big reason uh, as to why she lost a lot of faith in God and in her in her religion. Um, so she's tapped as the last scion by the Metatron to help to assist. And uh, I think this is really where the fun parts begin, leading up to these next two characters. I'm looking forward to it. Well, these next two characters are my favorites. We already kind of talked about them. Teeny bit. Jay and Silent Bob. Um, so how they fit into this film, uh, they are the two prophets that are supposed to help Bethany in this journey. I still want to know, like, the lore behind this. Like, why? You know? It was a way to shoehorn them in. Let's be I real. Know, There's no like, lore. But I want, I want to know. I like, why them? What, oh, what is the, like, what are the rules of this world? I need to know. I don't, I don't really know. I don't know if they logically make any sense. I mean, the reason why film-wise this, they were, and we talked about this, you know, they're, they're shoehorned in because without them and their comedy, it's just too serious. Yeah, the movie doesn't work without them. No, you really need them to kind of bring the heaviness down a to little bit. To ground it? Yeah. Um, also, kind of like if without them, it would get too too up its own ass. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Those two characters, man. So they're the prophets. They are preordained. They're they're supposed to they're supposed to help Bethany in the process here, um, and of course, add a lot of comic relief. Uh, and these two guys, man. I mean, Jay is just every level of inappropriate. Silent Bob goes along with it. He's totally in. He reacts perfectly. Um, Don't they, doesn't Jay say, uh, this is my hetero life partner at one point? Yeah, I love that. Oh, man. I think Jay also. Chaotic energy. That's... They're, they're, they're bros. They're bros. They're good bros. Chaotic energy. Uh, so these two idiots help out Bethany throughout the whole film. And uh, they actually play a pretty big part in defeating the, the two angels. Um, they kind of unintentionally move the plot forward in a lot of ways. Which is interesting, because like you said, what is their... Like, how do they fit into this? What is the context for why they're here? Uh, but they still play a really big role. Yeah, like, it obviously they were put in this to let, like be shoehorned in or whatever, right. like as you said. But like... Like, they really do make it work, and they really contribute a lot, so it's not like they're just there to say a funny one-liner, you know? Right. So, I mean, the whole reason God can't just, like, stop this from happening is God takes these sabbaticals where, um, you know, they, they go play skee-ball uh, on Earth as in a human form. So, uh, the, the real villain, the ones who actually uh, sends Bartleby and Loki on their path, to this archway uh, is a demon by the name of Azrael. And Azrael, uh, it makes it so that God is essentially stuck on earth uh, in this human form uh, by sending these three other little demon children after him and putting him in a, in a coma. So uh, the character John Doe Jersey is what he's called, is laying in a hospital bed uh, of course, no one knows that God is within that, this vessel, essentially, and can't get free because the body has to die in order for God to be able to go back to heaven. So throughout this whole thing, everyone's looking for God. No one knows where God is. God didn't tell anyone where, where they were going. 
So that's why they have to tap Bethany to assist them in, in stopping these angels. Um, and uh, these, these two idiots... <laughs> These two idiots, they get wrapped up in it, and like I said, they play a huge role. So uh, they actually are the ones who know about John Doe Jersey, and Bethany is the one who realizes that uh, God is actually trapped within that body. So that's one one huge... And then... uh, What's the other one? Silent Bob. Silent Bob. Silent Bob goes with her, right? Will Jay stays behind. That's right. And he helps... um... Fight the angels with... With uh, Rufus and Serendipity. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, so, I mean, they're not just... Essentially, the point I want to make is they're not just kind of hanging out in the background and being funny. They actually do play an active role within the plot and in moving it forward and actually, you know, doing something. What's as... funny, too, though, um, is in Clerks 2, you see him again. And right. this is this is years later, but... They have little... Jay has a, has a cross, right? Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He's found Jesus again. Yeah. Oh man, and this is. I think that's also within the Askew universe. So interesting. It's be interesting to watch them like in yeah. in a in a row throughout the timeline. The most ambitious crossover, right? The most ambitious crossover, indeed, indeed. So now we'll talk about the Renegade Angels themselves. These guys. First of all. How wild is it to see Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in this film? It's like wild to me because, you know, this is before they became these really renowned, respected actors. I mean, more on Matt Damon's part than Ben Affleck's. No offense, Ben Affleck. Um, Well, he played Batman. (laughs) Did he play him well? Okay, so... (laughs) We won't, we won't, he's, okay... Let's not shit on Ben Affleck too difficult, too hard here. He was in that one movie that I think won an Oscar or something. I don't know the name of it. I didn't watch it. Um, I'm but, sure he was know, good. I'm sure he was good in that one. They, they are considered to be good actors for all intents and purposes here. And it's just wild to see them in this film where it, you know, it, it's very much, it's not a film that's really devoted to the mainstream in any way. So it's so... It's so weird. They look so young. I don't know. This just doesn't... It's not a role that they would ever take now. Yeah. You know? It, it's so out of left field. They were... Uh, weren't they in a couple of his movies, too? They were. They yeah, were. Yeah, they were. They were... Uh, God, were they in Mallrats? Yeah. They were in Mallrats. Well, I know... Both of them? I, I think I, Ben I, Affleck was. Yeah. Um, and then Ben Affleck also has a cameo appearance in Clerks, too. He's just like a were they? In the, they were in the first Clerks, too, weren't they? Oh, shit. I don't know. It's been a long time. It's been a while. It's been a minute since I've seen those. Um, I don't remember. But, uh, so Bartleby and Loki, these two idiots. So, as I mentioned before, they're sent on this on this quest by uh, the demon Asriel. Uh, Asriel is a demon who used to be a muse in heaven. But uh, when there was a war between God and Lucifer, he chose to remain neutral. And as a result, God cast him out of heaven and sent him to hell. Uh, and Azrael essentially is, yeah, angry, but more so he just doesn't want to be in hell anymore. So he's banking on the fact that, you know, these two idiot angels are, are going to unmake the universe. Which is an interesting motivation, yeah. to be honest, because he's not even trying to get back into heaven. He no. just he just wants to end his own suffering yeah. in, like, the most cla- cataclysmic way possible. Exactly. He just... He wants it to. He wants to not exist. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, a really cool thing about Azrael is that um, if you pay attention to the sounds when he's introduced, uh, you first hear the sounds when he's first introduced. You hear the sounds of people screaming and in pain. Later on, though, when we see him again and he is introduced as the person who sent Bartleby and Loki on this quest, um, it's like this Caribbean melody that plays in the background. So, is this at the bar? Uh, no, this is when they're um, at the train. No, not the train. The bus station. And they're trying to get on a bus. Uh, and then they're like, oh, we'll just fly. We'll use our wings. We're angels. And that's when Azrael shows up. And you hear this kind of Caribbean tropical melody playing in the background. So it's made 
uh, obvious for the audience that he is a bad guy, given the sounds that we have um, when he's first introduced to us. But when he's introduced to Bartleby and Loki, it's like this really, like, Chillax. chill kind of melody playing in the background. And it shows that he's a friend to these two idiots. Not really because he's a friend, but because they can do something for him. Um, I thought that was a really, really cool little little tidbit. But um, I think it's also important to talk about why Bartleby and Loki were cast out to begin with. Oh, yeah. They had this whole conversation about it. Whole thing. Basically, they pissed off God because they didn't want to do their jobs anymore. Bartleby being someone who kept an eye on humans. Loki being the one who served out God's will. So, Loki was the guy, essentially... Well, it was specifically more Loki that he was mad at, right? And he was yeah. mad at um, Bartleby for basically having talked him into it. Yeah. So, Bartleby talks Loki into casting down his sword. Um, and not doing God's dirty work and being this violent angel anymore. Uh, he convinces him that humans are made to be pitied, essentially. You know, we need to be sympathetic to their plight. And... Um, God cast them out as a result of that. Uh, this, remember, this is Old Testament God. New Testament God is a lot more relaxed. Old Testament God is not playing any games. Oh my God. There are no games. Okay. <laughs> Old Testament God is like, you're my OCs, and you do what I say, and if you don't, I'm going to delete you off the internet. That's 100%. It's, it's like, like, Old Testament God is like a 12-year-old who, like, <laughs> yes. who's just like, just... Just, just kiss. Do, just do what just I say. Just do it. Yeah. No, 100%. Old Testament God is pissed off, man. And uh, Old Testament God has had it with these two. So they, you know, they cast him out. Um, and it, it's interesting. This is important. I mention this because it's interesting to see the change that overcomes the both of them. So by the time we get to the end of the film, their sympathy for humans has officially run out. Like at the beginning, Bartleby, who was the one who was the, the, the first first one to sympathize with them, um, by the end, he's completely changed. He has no sympathy left for humans. But he hates them. He hates them. He's jealous of them. And there's even parallels to like um, to Lucifer, right? Right. Throughout the film, like you know who you're. They have this whole scene. In the, yeah. In the I mean, Bartleby's whole thing of why like he rationalizes his hatred for for humans is you know angels we were created to serve we were never given patience we were never you know we were never given the same kind of special treatment that humans were humans were created just to exist and they have the freedom to believe in god to not believe in god they have the freedom to do what they want and he's angered by that he's jealous of it and he's hurt by it ultimately a lot of it is hurt you know and his Bartleby's story runs parallel to bethany's they both have a crisis of faith. You know, Bartleby doesn't believe in God anymore in his own way. So it's so interesting to see these two characters who are taking completely different journeys, but are also kind of meeting on this common ground of, we don't know what we believe in anymore. Um, and they have a whole discussion on, on a train ride where they're talking about just that, the crisis of faith and how... They don't know if their prayers are even being heard anymore. Um, so it's interesting to see this, this, this happen between the villain and the, the uh, main character of the, the story. The protagonist? The protagonist, exactly. The protag? Yeah. Uh, I think Bartleby is easily the most interesting of the two. Just because there's more of an emotional journey that happens alongside the, the more physical one. Where the plot itself... Also, the fact that he kind of like gets worse... Yeah. I think I, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that that's one of the most interesting things about him. And uh, I almost wish the roles were a little, were reversed. I wish Matt Damon had played Bartleby. Because I feel like he would have brought a whole... Like, he would have brought even more nuance to the character. Yeah. Some, sometimes the acting choices kind of took me out of it. I'm not gonna yeah, lie. Like, ben Affleck is. I'm not. No, I'm, I'm not gonna rag on the guy. I'm gonna rag on it a little bit. Um, he's not the world's greatest actor, and sometimes he makes choices that are choices, and they're they're not great choices. 
and like you said, it really takes you out of it. It gets really campy and hokey, some of the, some of the decisions he makes. Um, it would have been really interesting to have seen this character played a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries really hard to make it serious, but he, he fails a lot within the film. Uh, this is also late 90s, too. Like, yeah. To also be fair to him. To also be fair. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's supposed to be campy and hokey. That It wouldn't be Kevin Smith unless it was. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, but the, these, these, these two idiots. So by the time we get to the end, they are, they've passed through the arch. And, um, you know, it, this is where, where Bartleby has his whole, his whole moment of, of, you know, we deserve this. We deserve to get back to heaven. Um, and consequences be damned. And he's reached peak villain at yeah. this moment. And so much so that he kills Loki. Yeah. That was sad. It was sad. Because Loki, like... He kind of has an opposite arc to this. Because yeah. at the beginning, like, he's like... He's, he's, he's self-assured about who he is. Yeah. And what he's supposed to do. Yeah. And then, like, by the end, he's just, like, I don't know, and he's drunk and wandering around and just, like, done. I think what does Loki in is when um, there's the realization of we'll undo the entire universe if we go back to heaven. So, like, he realizes there's no going back home. Because he's really based around, like, eventually we'll go home. Like, I think he always has that hope innately. They both do. But once he realizes that it's not possible... That's, I think, what really does that character in, and why by the end he's actually like, he does say it in the beginning, huh? Like, yeah, it's it, it'll happen. Just like, don't worry about it. Yeah, like, yeah, we're gonna be stuck here, but like, eventually we'll go home. But then that choice is completely taken away, and there's no possibility of that happening anymore. And so his character goes off the rails, gets drunk, and then ends up turning against Bartleby and saying, you know, I'm not gonna let you continue this. Um, you know, we, we, there's no going home. We can't go home. It's not possible for us anymore. And then, um, Bartleby kills him. Bartleby kills him. Yeah. And, uh, it's a tragedy, really. Because they were such good friends. You know, they were stuck together for an eternity. And they had a really solid relationship. And then, it just falls to shit. And it's, it's really sad to see. It is. It's sad. Yeah, that's also another reason I kind of wish it had been played a little bit more seriously, because I feel like the gravitas of that moment when he kills him, we don't feel it as deeply as maybe we should. Yeah. Because I feel like, because it was played so campy and hokey, it loses a little bit of the substantialness to, you know, that ending. So up next, kind of going back to the um, racial theme. We're going to talk about Rufus, the 13th Apostle, uh, played by Chris Rock. Uh, also, wonderful casting choice. Fantastic. I always forget he's in this film. Right? And you're like, oh yeah. Every time you watch it. Every time. Honestly, halfway through I forgot it was him. I'm not going to lie. That's good acting right there. Yeah. He gets lost in the character. Um, and so Rufus gets involved in this. Uh, he's a, he was the 13th apostle. He also followed Christ along with everyone else. But he was left out of the Bible because he was a black man. Now, Rufus also makes this uh, the, very clear that Jesus was also a black man in this universe. But, uh, of course, Jesus can't be left out because then you have no Bible, really. Let's be real. Well, also in the real world, uh, the image of Jesus we have is also just taken from a... 15th century nobleman or some shit, right? Yeah, Jesus wasn't white. Let's make that clear. He wasn't white. Last thing he was. Uh, but anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so his problem with the Bible is uh, he was left out of it uh, because he was a black man. And he also wants to make it clear that Jesus was a black man as well. And that's why he gets involved. He thinks if I help, you know, the last scion out in stopping these angels from getting into heaven, maybe God will be willing to listen to me and make some changes. Uh, and this is important because he is a black man, you know. And then we also have serendipity at the other side of this, once again, played by Salma Hayek, who is a woman of color. Um, and we have these two characters who get involved because they want something changed. So uh, serendipity doesn't like that women are painted as, as 
you know, these villains within the Bible and Rufus doesn't like it that Jesus is made out to be anything but black and that he was left out as well. So this goes back to the racial tones of how you have these people of color coming forward and saying, you know, we've, we've been erased, essentially, from this really, really important story. And we don't think that's right and we don't think that's fair. What does that sound like? <laughs> you know, topical? Yes? Relevant? I feel like that's that, that feels almost more um, topical now, too. Yeah. Because that's a conversation that we have pretty often. Yeah. As opposed to, like, the 90s where, like, you know... Yeah, like I was saying with feminism, like, it's something that was absolutely there and it was discussed, but was it discussed in film like this? Were these points being really made like this? I don't know. I think it was very far and few in between where you were seeing this. And when it was discussed, it was always, like, in a small community. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was always something that was... Or a one-off. Yeah. You know, you saw it a lot in, like, uh, family sitcoms where they would have a really serious episode as a one-off. But then it was never talked about again. And even then, the very special episode is kind of condescending. Yeah. That's true. That's a fair point. Uh, And... uh, you know, as far as the racial theming goes, um, Rufus also does something, uh, he does something else that I think is, is really important. And this is something that I think a lot of Christians wouldn't particularly like, uh, but he humanizes Jesus. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a no-no. Like, I don't really know 100% for sure, but I do recall that not being an okay thing. Like, Which Jesus. is weird, because wasn't he, like, a dude? He was, yeah, he wasn't he a human? But, uh, he, he humanizes Jesus. He's talking to Bethany. Bethany wants to know, you know, what was he like? And he says, you know, he liked to listen to people talk. He liked to just sit around and just listen to us talk about everything. And Rufus really brings up the main point I think this film is trying to make. He says, you know... The problem is not necessarily that people have things wrong or right. It's that it's the factioning of all the religions. You've taken all of this, all of this information that is, like I said, supposed to be about togetherness and um, understanding and compassion and love, and you've made it into like this bastardized version, version essentially. You know, the things that, like he said, the things that get carried out in Jesus' name. You know, you've, you've taken something and you, you've ruined it by making it a weapon. Yeah. Um, he also makes this whole point about, like, beliefs versus ideas. Mm. And he's like, beliefs are bad because they're just too... They're too general. They're too general and they're too... Well, not even that. Just like... They're not concrete. They're... I mean, I'm sorry, they're too concrete. Yeah, they're too concrete. They're too concrete, sorry. <laughs> sorry, yep, yeah. And that people get caught up in it, and it very easily becomes a weapon, like you were saying. Yeah. And with ideas, it's a lot easy, they're more flexible, mm. and he, he has this whole spiel about yeah. it in the movie, and it's, it's, it's very interesting, and I think that's how I personally also think about religion. Yeah. Like, it's not bad, necessarily. It's not bad to, you know... Yeah. It's it's just the way people go about it that's mm, wrong. Exactly. It's what humans do with it. Like he said, the things that get carried out in Jesus' name. You know, people just attach him to it, and they call it a day. And they say, well, we are right in this because Jesus. You know, it's sort of like, and uh, apologies for saying this. I'm sorry if, you know, I trigger anyone by saying this word. Um... But, you know, God hates fags. You know, like, people just attach God's name and to anything. his idea, the idea of God to it. But when did it, where does it say that God said that? You know, where, where is, where, where, are, the, where are the receipts? <laughs> where are the receipts to this? Um, and there are none, because he never said that. You know, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. And that being said, even if it did, the you know who wrote the Bible. Also, I'm pretty sure God's official Twitter account says that that's not true. That's all. <laughs> that's a very good point. That's a good <laughs> reference right there. Yeah. So I mean, Rufus is is a wonderful character because I think he encompasses everything the movie's arguing for. 
he's the whole point of the movie, mm -hmm. really. And once again, I think it's wonderful that we get this from a black man. Yeah, you know, we get this from a black character, that he's the one who is really giving us an understanding of what the whole point of this film is. Um, that is true, actually. Yeah. I think there's something rhetorically really interesting about that. It's not given to Bethany, the main character, who's a white woman. It's given to the black man. Interesting. You know? And it's it's so... Does he does he technically then fit into the uh, the wise black man trope, or does he have to be old for that? I don't know. Well, he is old, actually. I mean, technically, yeah. I mean, he's hundreds of years old. The old mentor. I mean, I don't feel like he offers her any more advice than Serendipity does. I feel like the Metatron fits more into that, like, like the old man in the beard offering sage advice. I don't know if he's 100% in that category. That's true, huh? I was just wondering. Yeah. I don't know. We'd have to look into that to see if he would fit that, that, that trope. I don't know if he does that. Because most of the time their conversations really do feel like two friends. Yeah, talking. Yeah. Rather than like an authority and or like a mentor-mentee situation. Yeah. It feels more like they're talking. And he doesn't tell her how she should feel about right. it. He just kind of... They, she has her own points, too, that yeah. she makes, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And he has his. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a friendly conversation as opposed to I'm talking down to you or I'm talking to what you should do, what you should feel. Which also the fact that he's a man and she's a woman, too. But also that also comes into play. It's a lot rhetorically to break down. Um, well, like, too much, there's a lot going on. There's a lot happening, there's too honestly. much going on. And I, you know, I've been playing Skyrim all day. <laughs> <laughs> Another important thing Rufus does is he talks about, he's the one who, who, who introduces to us um, the, the, one, of the, one of the major points of why, how Bethany is the final scion. Um, he's the one who tells her, you know, Jesus had half siblings. You know, the Virgin Mary, she had a husband. They had kids. He's the one that tells us about this. We get this information from him. It's important information. Also, um, at the end, like, we got, um, as he's leaving with God and everyone. Right. He's like, you know, God's not really a woman, right? And then he's like, and it's like, she's not really anything. Mm. And I made the point of, like, oh, she's non-binary. Yeah, binary individual. And all the, all the angels actually don't have a sex. Right. So they are all two as well. Another thing that I actually was interested in, in talking about is, you know, the Metatron tells Bethany quite a bit, um, and he talks about his feelings as to, you know, how he thinks it's not fair that he's asking her to do this, but instead of getting the information as to how Bethany's the last scion uh, from the Metatron, we get it from Rufus, and I wonder why. Is it because he had more of a, like, a deeper connection, a more personal connection with Jesus? Um... I just think it's interesting that we don't get it from the voice of God. We get it from the 13th and well, Forgotten Apostle. Well, I feel like that makes, that makes sense, though. It does. Because I, there's no reason for him to tell her, the Metatron. I mean, I think there is a reason, because he's he's told her, you know, you need to save the world. But and he, she already agreed to it, so what more is there to be said? But I think that's talking, the reason. We're talking about gods here, though, you know? What do you mean? Like... Well, we're talking about God and the voice of God. And uh -huh. They already got her to agree to do the thing. Right. Well, you know how they are, Shantae. I'm just they saying. They never want to say shit. They're, they're very cryptic. There's still a reason. You know, whether she's agreed to it or not, it, it still could have come from him. Like, that character could have still easily have told her further on down the road. But instead, she finds out from Oh, Rufus, you're talking about further down the, the road. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying right then and there when he says you need to save the world. I'm saying it's interesting that yeah. she doesn't hear it from the voice of God, the Metatron. She hears it instead from Rufus. And then she confronts God, and then the Metatron is the one who comes to her and says, you know, I don't think this is fair either, but we don't have a choice. I, I just, I wonder why that decision was made. As it just makes more narrative sense. Mm. I think that's what I, where I'm coming from. Gotcha. Okay. That, like, it wouldn't make any sense within the story for the Metatron to tell her. Not even in that, that one section where they're having that discussion about how no. he told Jesus. Because and... how would that even have been brought up originally? Oh, I, I have no idea. That's the thing. 
But it's Kevin Smith. He's great at this. I'm sure he could have <laughs> configured a way, but like I, the the way they went about it makes more sense for sure. It makes more mm-hmm. sense for Rufus, who is base, who's very much like her friend, to tell her. Now, when does mention. he tell her in the film? Do you remember when he tell? Is it like halfway through the film? Are we already in the final section of it? Um, I think we're just like the beginning of the third act, the end of the second, maybe. We're already towards the end by the time she finds out. And he tells her because she asks, right? I'm trying to remember the scene. Because um, they're around the campfire. You're right. And it's around, It's he's telling her about the half-slivings, too, it, right? Yeah, and he says, Bethany, you're the great, 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 it's million times great and grandniece then it, like, of Jesus. blows her mind. Yeah. And she runs off into the woods. And she says it's bullshit. Yeah. And then she runs off. And that's when the Metatron uh, shows up. And he, he tells her, I think this is also really interesting. The Metatron brings up this really great point of saying, you know, he's the one who had to tell Jesus when he was a little boy what was going to happen to him. Him. Um, and his purpose essentially on earth and he tells her you know if he could have taken it all away he would have um that's a really sad scene it's very emotional and I, i think it says a lot about how unfair it was that god you know created this child and then essentially sent him to as a pig to slaughter you know to 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 fix a problem of course but you know how is that fair and it, it makes you really kind of look at the story itself, and and it kind of leaves you a little bit of a, of a bad taste in your mouth, almost. Honestly, that story's always left a bad taste in my mouth. Right. But, I mean, when you're told it so many times, and it's so commonplace, you don't really think about it. And I think that's kind of what Kevin Smith's trying to do. He's trying to reach oh. those Catholics who, like, it's just it's just a part of the story, and you don't even think about the reality of it. But then you have the Metatron, the voice of God, saying, like... It, it very much humanizes it again. It, again. Like, imagine yeah. if that was your kid, and they exactly. were told when they were, like, nine that they were going to die. Yeah. In a horrible way, like... Yeah. You know, you're going to be crucified by the people that you came to save. In that same conversation, you know, she says... Bethany says, so my life's been a lie. And the Metatron says, no, like... You're Bethany Sloan. No one can take that away from you, not even God. Um, And I think that's an important distinction to make because it kind of, it it gives you value as a person almost when you really look into it. Like, your value is not wrapped up in... Who your family is? Well, no, in just, like, this question of why are we here. Uh... Like, your existence doesn't have to have meaning for you to have value as a person. That's the point he's trying to make to Bethany. Like, your value hasn't changed. Just because maybe your identity is slightly different now, or you have to take on this new identity, you know, you are still who you always have been. It doesn't yeah. change you. And it almost, it all, all, almost like, it makes it seem like her dilemma was almost silly. Mm. Because it's like, of course it doesn't take that away from you. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it's very like, emotional. It's it's like one of those hindsight things. Like, it's a kind of, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the moment, I definitely get how she's yeah, feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you know, like, I, it feels like you've been lied to your whole life. And you're like, well, well then who am I? You know? Yeah. Um, but he makes this great point of you are, you are Bethany Sloan. That's who you are. And that's who you will continue to be. Uh, Metatron's a great character. He Alan is. Alan Rickman does such a good job with bringing... And it, this is what I wish Ben Affleck had done with Bartleby. You know, he... Alan Rickman does a wonderful job of bordering, like, the kind of silliness the Metatron brings mm-hmm. while also being really serious and bringing a lot of really important emotional depth to the character. Because you really do feel for the Metatron. You feel for what he's experienced. And there's Cheeto, our fourth host, for God's sakes... Uh-huh. Just, he's tired. <laughs> he's, he's a tired boy. He yeah. has a bedtime, and it's way past it. Everyone's going to be like, Jesus, cats. Uh, yeah, I mean, so that that's the Metatron and, and, and Rufus for you right there. Two wonderful characters. I think those two, besides Jane, Silent Bob, are my favorite. Um, I really appreciate those characters so much. <laughs> So now we get into ripping this shit apart.
Likes and dislikes. What worked for you in this film? Um. Oh, the characters. The characters. Did you like? Um. The like the the camera shots. Anything about the technical side? I feel like I don't know enough about the technical side. Like I know when it's bad and when it's good. <laughs> right. You know? But like, that was wonderful cinematography. I couldn't tell you, like, the nuances of it or, like, the specific right. techniques or anything, because that's just not my... Oh, no, I couldn't tell you that either. I, I felt like a lot of the the camera shots themselves, though, were a little bit s- static as opposed to dynamic. I kind of... That's kind of Kevin Smith, though. Like, a lot of his camera shots tend to be kind of, like, one note. Very simple... You know, there's nothing really... I feel like that kind of works, though, for this sort it of does. thing. It does. Yeah. I think there are definitely moments, though, where maybe a little bit more could have been done. Oh, like the more dramatic moments? Yeah. I, I, I feel you. Like, maybe a bit more. Yeah. But also, in 1999, I mean, I think there's also... We have to take that into consideration. Um, another aspect, and we had talked about this, and I actually found an article that talks about this, uh, which I will... I will put a link to. Um, it's by Germain Lucier, or Lucier. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. But uh, he talks about, this is recent also. I think it was last year this was published. And he talks about how um, dogma, it almost seemed like, uh, and this is a quote, Smith took an entire lifetime of religious debates, wrote them down, and then formed a story around them. So... Essentially, what he's what he's saying is that there's just a lot in this hour and a half film. I do completely agree with that. Yeah, there were moments where it's just like, God, if I could pause it right now, I would. Mm-hmm. Just to like process. To process. Like my notes for this one too, as we were writing them down, like I feel like I couldn't keep up with myself. Yeah, because there's no, just same. there's a lot being thrown at you, constantly. Constantly. Yeah. And I mean that doesn't. It makes it an interesting watch, but you do kind of just get lost in it. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I think that was one of my major criticisms with this film is that it felt like we would really, like, get into a topic, like serendipity talking about how women are vilified in the Bible, and then, like, we would immediately move on. Yeah. Um, and... And you're like, wait, wait, hold yeah. on. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute, hold on, we are still talking about this. <laughs> I, I think like also, this. though, too, because it's very obviously written... Mm. Um, it, it's very obviously taking from real life uh, conversations mm. that it's almost like you want to be a part of the conversation. Please. You want to say your piece too, but you can't because it's a film. It's a, film. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing and a terrible thing at the same time. It's 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 slightly frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like because I said, there's so much like I want to say in response, and I can't. You can't do it. It has to be done in the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, it's also slightly problematic because it is, it gives you a taste, but then because it doesn't delve deeper in to the problem itself, you know, it immediately pulls back from it and, you know, you get all this good shit, you know, in a few minutes, but then it, there's no payoff, essentially. Um, slightly disappointing, slightly disappointing for me. We really start to get into it, and then it doesn't really go anywhere, and it immediately moves on to something else. It almost seems like, um, what is the word? A cop-out. It seems like a cop-out. You know, we're like, ah, I'm going to discuss something really good, and then I'm not really going to give you anything. There's a lot of interesting ideas being thrown around. Yeah. And there's not a lot of depth. (laughs) Yeah, there's not a lot of depth to them. It's, It's disappointing. It's, it is. It's slightly disappointing with I think we even at one point we were uh, discussing that like this would have been like a really cool miniseries now. Yeah. Because like the concept itself is really fucking cool and yeah. something I haven't really seen before. Yeah. I mean the only thing instance I can say that we've seen anything like this is maybe like Constantine. Uh, That's comic true actually. Books, and I think the film as well it kind of kind of sort of but not really it doesn't really go into commentary. It's just it's an action film. Um, but just the themes are somewhat similar. There's some parallels. Yeah. It would be a cool miniseries now. It'd be really, and I think that a lot of people 
would take a lot from it. Like, back then, it was... There was a huge stink about this movie. Catholics did not like this film. There were protest groups at, you know, screenings of it. Um, Kevin Smith actually joined a protest group and was interviewed by the local news outlet. And he was just like, yeah, this movie fucking sucks. You could find the interview. It's hilarious. Oh, my God. I Uh, didn't know that happened. And I... (laughs) It's That's wonderful. hilarious. It's just, it's, Kevin Smith is great at trolling, and it is prime trolling, honestly. Trolling before trolling was even a thing. Um, and But I think this movie, if you look at, like, something like American Gods, it's, I think it's on Stars. Um, Neil Gaiman, American Gods. And it's, it's kind of along the same lines. I think that there is room for this, this story to be told again. But I think a little bit... In, in a more substantial way that has a little bit more depth to it, a little bit more weight to it. Not too serious. Oh, no, yeah. Um, it wouldn't work. Again, too up its own ass if it yeah. went that route. Yeah, uh, which a lot of them kind of tend to do when they get religious. I think that this would have been wonderful with a little bit more time, though. Because I think an hour and 30, 40 minutes, it's I not feel enough. Like, I feel like we were almost just kind of getting into it, and then it ends. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. It feels like the first chapter of a book that I really want to read. <laughs> yeah, it does. And then we're like at the the end of the, the story, and I'm like, wait a second, where's the rest? There's there's should be a lot more in the middle, I think. Yeah, that's how movies tend to be, though. To be honest, that's also very true. It's also why I like when we get um, like extra media from a film or a TV show, like a book or something. Because it's always see, uh, cool to see behind the scenes, like with like Avatar The Last Airbender, we got comic books, you know, to continue and the story. And they're lit, by the way. Yeah, so I love when we get that. And I wish we'd gotten something like that from this. Um, it would have been cool to have a comic book, graphic novel or something to kind of continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there you go. Is there anything else that you liked, didn't like um, about this? I love the casting. I do. I think the casting was really well done in a lot of ways. Alanis Morissette actually was originally supposed to play Bethany, but she had a world tour happening, and it didn't work out. By the time she realized she could do it, they had already cast another actress for Bethany. I kind of like her playing God, though. I do, too. I don't know why, but she has, like, a very, like... Her her energy, her vibe. Her vibe. Her vibe is... Yeah. It works for the female God. Very cool, yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty much it then. I think we did the damn thing. You you don't have anything else, Ted? I thought there was more that you wanted to say about. I mean, really, it was just more about you know. There's so much happening, and I feel like we don't get the payoff from it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really is the biggest criticism. That's my biggest criticism for sure of this film. This has been two hags converge in the woods. And our fucking cats that are tired and won't stop. Yeah, sorry. We live in a house that's a zoo. Uh, I'm Shantae. I'm Ash. And we'll see you guys two weeks from now with something else. Couldn't tell you what. (laughs) Couldn't tell you what. It's, it's, Mercury has been in retrograde. It hasn't been great. So bear with us, please. We'll see you guys very soon. Say bye, Ash. No. Okay. <laughs>